You're listening to a No Borders Media News Roundup. On today's episode, recorded late on September 25th, 2018, we focus on politics in Toronto and Ontario, looking closely at resistance to the right-wing Ford government. We hear from a panel of Toronto-area left-wing activists, organizers, and political commentators, Desmond Cole, Nilufar Golkar, Syed Hassan, and Sharmin Khan. Over the course of a more than one-hour conversation, we explore the regressive changes already brought in by the Ford government and the possibilities of resistance to his agenda. We look critically at the demobilizing role of the NDP and big labor, but also hopefully at examples of grassroots self-organizing, from the recent high school walkout, Black Lives Matter, and the Fight for 15 campaign. We raise the alarm bells about the increased normalization of the racist far right in Ontario, as exemplified by the discourse of candidates running all over the GTA and the Golden Horseshoe. There's some kudos for one progressive Toronto mayoral candidate, but focus on non-electoral rooted resistance to meaningfully disrupt the right wing and far right agenda. Let's go to our Toronto Focus News Roundup right now. Hey everyone, this is No Borders Media, another one of our news roundups. This one is Toronto-centric. We have four guests from the greater Toronto area, four people involved in different ways in the political culture and political organizing of the Toronto area. And it's a topic I felt was important to get into because of the fact that Rob Ford is now the premier and there is a mayoral election. And in general, uh, Toronto, this huge megalopolis, um, what happens there does affect what happens elsewhere. And I have a soft spot from Toronto for Toronto since I'm from there myself. So uh, we have four guests today, uh, um, Nilufar, Sharmin, Hassan and Desmond. Uh, so I'll let you guys uh, introduce yourselves. Tell us who you are, what kind of stuff you're involved with. Uh, if you want, tell us where you're speaking from in, in the Toronto area. So how about we start with Nilofar? Hi, um, this is Nilofar. I have been active in environmental movement, uh, anti-pipeline and indigenous solidarity, and also uh, very active in QP3903. Uh, previously, I was on bargaining team and last year on the executive. And for listeners that don't know, QP3903 is... Uh, well, tell us, what is QP3903? Because it, when you're involved with Toronto politics, that, that union name <laughs> comes up a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a QP that represents workers at York University, uh, graduate assistants, teaching assistants, and contract faculty. So how about you, Desmond? Introduce yourself. Um, my name is Desmond Cole. I'm a freelance journalist and an activist and an author in Toronto. Um, that's it. <laughs> All right. Um, and Charmin, how about you? Okay. Hi. Uh, my name's Charmin. I organize uh, with a group called Known as Illegal Toronto, and I'm also an editor with um, an activist journal uh, called Up in the Ante. I also work at QP2903, where Noah Fur was my boss last year, technically. Um, and I also am engaged with um, training. I'm now taking over training for change, or sorry, tools for change, uh, which is meant to be um, a training series for activists and to share skills. So that's what I do in Toronto. Cool. And our last guest, Hassan. Hi, everyone. My name is Hassan, and I work with migrant and undocumented people and others here in Toronto and across the country. And if folks don't know, my name is Juggy Singh, and I'm I'm speaking from the far east of Toronto, a place called Montreal. <laughs> but uh, I have a lot of ties and links to Toronto, 
so let's get into it. And obviously, um, with the election of Rob Ford in early June, his swearing in in late June, that's become a huge political focus. It's, it's resulted in an uptick of outrage, an uptick of organizing. Uh, I asked you before the show, Hassan, just to maybe um, give us a breakdown of some of the things that Ford has done, uh, well-known things he's done, but lesser-known things he's done over the past few years, and that could form the basis of our discussion on how to how to resist this uh, this right-wing government. So, first of all, it's not Rob Ford, it's uh, Doug Ford. Sorry. Um, Rob Ford, of course, is... Um, <laughs> I always make that mistake. ...previous mayor of Toronto. Doug is his brother, and Rob Ford, you know, probably maligned as one of the most... Uh, hated and unfortunately laughed at mayors in the world at one point. Um, So Doug Ford, who was with his brother on council trying to push similar strategies, is now the Premier of Ontario. In terms of actually like large legislative and regulatory changes, um, there's not been that many um, because there's just been very few days in power, but still there's a significant amount of changes, but more worrisome, um, significant um, changes that are about to come down the line. So some of them, I mean, you mentioned the uh, legislating back to work of QP 3903, uh, the changes to the cap and trade program, the stopping the police reforms. Uh, there is, of course, the cuts to the sex ed curriculum and the truth and reconciliation indigenous curriculum, uh, as well as um, the rollbacks to the changes in the Ontario Works and ODSP. These are a few of the changes, but there's been kind of like an after effect. So the cuts to the um, cap and trade has meant that money has now disappeared for fixing off schools and hospitals and et cetera. But what I do want to say is that, you know, we're in this kind of limited position where the police changes that he was about to bring were not the ones we wanted. Uh, but now <laughs> that even that minor reform is not happening, um, we are looking at uh, people are wanting to defend the bad thing that we had. Similarly, I mean, camping train was not exactly the kind of plan that we need to stop the climate catastrophe, but yet now it's being defended um, because it was a minor reform and he's just made it worse. So we're in this, um, uh, and similarly with Ontario Works and ODSP, there was a very, very minor increase of a 3% increase in rates for social assistance uh, people on social assistance, um, whereas the ask is, you know, 55%, but it was raised to 3% just because it's been frozen for so long. Uh, but he moved it from 3% to 1.5%, as well as taking away a bunch of other very minor reforms. I mean, significant for the people who are using it, uh, but certainly not enough uh, from what we needed. So I wonder if other folks want to chime in now about just how you felt and about how you've had to adjust in terms of organizing, in terms of uh, meeting this challenge of, of the new Doug Ford uh, government in power. I'll probably make that mistake I'll show. So, um, Doug Ford, anyone else want to chime in about that? Well, um, yeah, this is Charmaine speaking. I think um, probably the um, significance of, uh, of this new conservative government and with Doug Ford um, um, has, is, is going to be around how we talk about racism and white supremacy, and so with the recent photo of him posing with Faith Goldie, um, connected with neo-Nazi organizations and a white supremacist. And um, I just wanted to flag this moment because um, in uh, a few weeks, November 2nd, Steve Bannon is scheduled to come to Toronto and debate another like U.S. imperialist, David Frum. And I think like how these conversations of white supremacy are going to be happening um, will be will be very very um, hard for like committed anti-racists. Um, you know the fact that there's much outrage that I can see 
from from those photos and um, from the links of Doug Ford with uh, white supremacy um, kind of shows just I mean how uh, normalizing white supremacy and maybe the and the growth of you know these um, ultra fascist and right wing movements will become now um, as become more and more normalized. You know, I'm, I'm now seeing comments of like, why don't we give Faith Goldie a, a platform for the male race when she has so much popularity? I'm not questioning that popularity itself. Um, so, uh, yeah, yesterday or the last few days when that was happening, I did want to bookmark it because we are going to start mobilizing around the, you know, um, that event, the monk debate with Steve Bannon and David Frum. And um, for me, it is alarming about how the, these public conversations are happening with white supremacy. So I just wanted to... It's, it's kind of um, outrageous. You have, you have a scenario where... This debate against Steve Bannon, the the white nationalist, uh, former white nationalist advisor or former advisor who still is a white nationalist to Donald Trump. The person debating him is a neoconservative who was uh, the speechwriter for George Bush. And then you have a situation in Toronto and in Ontario where sort of the two uh, antagonists are John Tory versus uh, Doug Ford, both of whom (laughs) were leaders. One is the current leader of the Ontario Conservative Party and the other is the... um, former leader of the, of the Ontario Tories. Sort of uh, just absurd how, how right-wing the debates have moved. Um, and maybe that's something we can get into in a, in a few minutes, but uh, I want to get all your thoughts about how, how we've taken in um, uh, Doug Ford. And Desmond, I'm going to ask you last, because you recently made comments on 1010 uh, Radio in, in Toronto that are pretty provocative about Doug Ford. But uh, Nilofar, what are your thoughts about Ford coming in and, and how we should respond or how you're taking that in? Well... 3903 was one of the first uh, groups that was affected by back-to-work legislation. And it was, like, very obvious that university was sitting and waiting until a conservative government come and legislate us back to work. And we see that uh, university even didn't, as following reprisals, going after students, and um, not really taking the process of collective agreement seriously uh, and, like, not following the previous kind of, like, practices, like, which was uh, QP and university usually making a piece. Uh, nobody would go after other. Um, so we were obviously one of the first ones, and then we see on many grounds, which is making it harder. Even in anti-fascist kind of organizing, we see so much police brutality these days. Like in all the rallies, it seems like there's lines of cops protecting the white supremacists. Even then, they come through the Antifa, uh, start beating and going police face until they pass and they come and arrest anti-fascists. And uh, I think, I don't think that these are the results of the Ford government, but definitely Ford government has involved it, uh, these actions. Well, it's it's been mentioned now twice uh, about um, Ford kind of normalizing far-right politics in the sense that um, he, he ended up being in this photo with Faith Goldie, and despite being asked multiple times by uh, in in the Ontario legislature and by journalists to sort of distance, he he sort of he's been he's in this gray area where he says I'm against hate, but doesn't denounce clearly Goldie and Desmond uh, on uh, 1010 Talk Radio recently. Uh, as a response to this, you went ahead and said 
Doug Ford is a white supremacist himself. So uh, maybe use that to talk about how you've taken in Ford. Uh, obviously, you you have you're not mincing your words when you're when you're when you're talking about him and and what his politics really stand for. Well, you know, I I just wanted to make that commentary because it's not it goes without saying, except that nobody wants to say it. It goes without saying that Doug Ford is implementing a white supremacist agenda. That's not really, we're talking about Canada here. Like it's, it's not really a big deal, but we don't know how to talk about what white, white supremacy really is. And we don't want to talk about our everyday proximity, I think, to white supremacy in Canada. So sure, when you say, look, when Doug Ford and Faith Goldie are standing together, that's two white supremacists. People go, oh my goodness. But that, I think that's self-evident in some ways. It just needs to be said over and over until it's normal the way that they normalize all of the horrible things that they're trying to say. Um, really, the larger context for me here is that I'm feeling like it's 1993, or sorry, 95 uh, again. But it's, um, I wouldn't say it's history repeating itself because somebody t- told me recently that it's a little different than that, and I agree. It's an echo of history. What happened in Harris, uh, the Harris years, starting in 1995, is how it feels like for me right now. Um, I think this government is actually trying to take an even more aggressive pace than the Harris government did in attacking certain groups and signaling radical changes that will often amount to just austerity, more austerity, governance. Um, I also, I think I'm thinking a lot about um, 2005, because 2005 was a year where there was a lot of gun violence in Toronto, as there is this year. 2005 was also a year that I was working and doing um, street outreach in a harm reduction facility, and um, we were beginning to lose people to something called fentanyl, and not a lot of people knew what that was. And all these years later, seeing Toronto overdose prevention uh, services setting up in Parkdale and setting up in Moss Park reversing overdoses, saving people's lives, but having to do it in tents and having to do it in trailers. Um, These are echoes for me of things that I've been seeing in my 15 years in Toronto, but even going back to my younger days in Durham region and just starting to get active as a young person, as a teenager, because the Harris government was going after teachers and, you know, I started marching with teachers on a picket line somewhere and that was how it started for me. The, that last point you made really resonates because um, I've met so many people who are who are activists now who kind of started back in the Harris days, and a lot of them in high school. Uh, yeah. And just a few days ago, I um, I was able to speak with three high school students in Toronto uh, from Western Tech um, uh, and the student school, which is linked to Western Tech, uh, because they did a, a really inspiring uh, action of walking out on their classes and organizing so that upwards of 40,000 high school students from all over Ontario walked out of their classes this past Thursday and Friday. Um, that, to me, is just sort of a segue into talking about how what does opposition what is opposition going to look like? What has it looked like so far? It's been a very short period of time, only since uh, basically late June, early July, that Ford has taken power, so just a couple of months. But um, what has inspired each of you uh, in the past few months, and what are the possibilities of organized resistance? There are lessons from the Harris area, and I'm going to get into that a bit, which is the role of labor and 
trusting organized labor or not, um, I hate to say, but um, let's talk about some of that resistance. Uh, feel free, any one of you, to, to start into how, how that's looked in the past few months and what it could look like in the coming months and years. So this is Hassan. Maybe I'll just get started. I think what we're seeing is a lot of organizations um, who are, you know, still responding the way that they did within the under the 15 years of the liberal government, which is um, a politics of spectacle, uh, politics of negotiation, a politics of not trying to look the side, look so bad, let's give them an out. Um, lots and lots of protests, uh, the hope that bad media attention will actually deter um, the government. Um, and I also think that there was a huge opportunity lost first prior to the election, knowing that he was going to win, as was loudly predicted, but also this entire summer where, um, you know, I think a lot of kind of like labor advocacy and grassroots groups sort of took a break from, because it's some time had to go to their cottages, etc., um, because there's a certain kind of uh, distance from these issues. Um, and so I think what we're seeing right now is really um, the social movements broadly defined um, uh, and labor movements on a back foot. Um, we're seeing, you know, legal challenges uh, beginning. So you could see that with the council cuts, the big thing was to go to court. And then, uh, and this happens also in a right-wing government where people, when they find that the kind of like liberal spectacle sport of getting bad press for protesters and what people do not escalate into actually stopping the flow of capital and making it unprofitable for the agenda to be imposed, but rather turn to primarily a legal strategy. We've seen this throughout the Harper era uh, in Canada, but also you see it under Trump in the United States. So I do think that there are um, some significant um, drawbacks into the strategizing and largely um, across the province, people have not caught up to our new reality um, or, you know, because for 15 years you've been doing things single way. For many people, this just has no experience of how to organize an alternative climate. But of course, there are absolutely some, you know, very, very um, uh, uh, interesting new formations. And it's always useful to see that, you know, things always happen from places we can't predict it. So the student um, walkout that you spoke about to me is, you know, critical. I think the... Uh, OPS, even after the, the Overdose Prevention Society, choosing to continue its work even after um, Ford cut. Um, that's important. Uh, but I do think that um, also we have to really, really caution against the politics outrage, which is to say like every new thing, like a photograph with Faith Goldie or something else, like people are just going from one outrage to the other. We've already forgotten the cuts to social assistance, which frankly will impact a lot more people. Um, and I would say that for me, I think the really, really critical big fight that is happening because it will impact the most number of people is one, social assistance, and two, the coming changes to labor law. Because over, you know, a million and a half people in this province are on minimum wage and they're about to face a cut to their wages. And, on, and not only that, you know, that many people work in temp agencies and they're going to um, roll back the equal pay provisions, which were which meant that people in temp agencies weren't being robbed from essentially by the temp agency workers. So the really big fight that I think are coming are around uh, labor issues, particularly, and then around social assistance. And I think the silence around that um, in the past few months where people have instead, as you pointed out, chosen to focus on other things is, is uh, uh, concerning. It's gravely concerning that uh, we haven't been able to make tactical choices on what are the actual fights worth fighting versus the fights that we have to um, 
let go. So anyone else on what's what's been inspiring or what uh, considerations we should have uh, looking forward in terms of how we need to resist uh, resist the Ford government? Are we are we stumbling as Hassan kind of puts it, you know, from a crisis to another crisis and not having a more of a strategic vision here? Uh, this is Charmaine. Um, I'll just um, pipe in quickly and. Um, I was I was an organizer in uh, Victoria in uh, 2001 when the uh, right wing they call themselves liberal but the right wing liberal government came in and um, and when Desmond talked about kind of about 1995 and 2005 I I did think about when we were mobilizing against you know um, them first coming in and. Um, you know, deregulating, cutting down, uh, shutting down women's centers, um, which is where I worked at the time. And when I try and think, try and compare those times, I think there was a moment back then where I felt there was more of, just a lot more people were trained in direct action. It was kind of on the, you know, ending heels of the anti-globalization movement. And so I felt I was surrounded by a lot of trained activists. Um, but also, I just found that um, the labor movement was more willing to act uh, and respond um, in, in a quicker fashion than what I see now. Um, and I do agree with Hassan. I think that like, when um, any government comes in and says, we are now open for business, which is what Rob Ford said about Toronto, but also now Doug Ford has said about Ontario. I think anytime some leader says we're open for business, you will expect attacks against labor, um, deregulation, and um, you know, making things a lot more, um, you know, cutting environmental regulations in order for development and for business to prosper. And so um, um, definitely there's a few instances, like even with the city council stuff, I am a bit cynical, but I was happy to see people at least like mobilize because I think that will inspire some confidence. I think, I think people are feeling like people who would respond or who are, uh, you know, radicals and on the left, I do feel a lot of um, despair and just like not knowing where to begin. And I think um, seeing and participating in actions will build that confidence. But I am really um, concerned about the lack of movement by organized labor. Um, there actually hasn't been like one open call for like, you know, uh, for the Toronto District Labor Council or a citywide or province-wide gathering about how we're going to respond to Ford, knowing that he's going to go after labor and go after labor rights, um, you know, of the most precarious and, and um, yeah, of labor. So um, that's definitely a concern. Um, sorry, I don't have much inspiration, but I'm also having a bad day. So, um <laughs> Well, this is a this is sort of a longer term fight, so I'm sure we'll we'll get together again and assess where we're at. Um, <laughs> Nilofar or, or Desmond, do you have thoughts about um, uh, resistance? What's been inspiring so far, uh, or what we need to be critical about? Um, for me, I think um, one of the main things that we can do in raising consciousness and also like bringing more people into the movement is that starting linking, that's why, for example, Rob Ford take a photo with Faith Goldie. And what does it have to do with uh, rising expenses, precarity, and what is the link here? Like, uh, why does he do that? Why is he a white, or in another word, why is he a white supremacist? And um, the, the like answer to it might be the link between uh, how the precarious workers are mostly racialized and women and 
who are the uh, right-wing white supremacist groups. It's Proud Boys, it's different um, groups that are not just pointing at race, but also at masculinity, playing specific form of masculinity, that Rob Ford is also representing it. So one of the, I think, main works that we can do here is trying to link all these struggles to each other because people who are facing this know it and it's also it just needs to be said desmond your thoughts um i was inspired by this tens of thousands of students mentioned earlier who were participating in walkouts and who were um you know or mobilizing in the last several days. I found that to be really great. I interviewed a couple of students on my radio station on Sunday. And yeah, I think that that gave people a good burst of energy because as I said, a lot of us came up the same way uh, during a very similar, similar feeling time. Um, something I guess I'm concerned about is like when we say we, um, in terms of our collective fighting back and our collective resistance, which we are we talking about? Because one of the things that I'm seeing right now is that one would rightly assume that Doug Ford's change to city council in the middle of an election is a kind of divide and conquer tactic. It's a way to throw chaos into the mix and to force people who would otherwise be sharing resources and working together to have to work against each other. That has certainly been the case, but I think we should pay attention to the extent that that division has played out along race lines and gender lines and class lines in the city of Toronto, because really it seems that not in every single case, but more often than not, the people who are expected to or feel a sense of duty to step aside in favor of white male cis candidates are women, people of color, immigrants. And like, so I think that there's like a division um, because a lot of us feel like we're not part of the we. I think that's an enduring problem. I think it's something we need to pay attention to in Toronto right now. I happen to think that, you know, I'm talking specifically here about the election interference again. Um, I happen to think that the hundreds, if not thousands of, you know, middle-aged to older white people that I saw going to these community meetings, going to these town halls and churches and community centers, um, they were really the people that I would have expected more that part of the we to be really outraged by this. They were very polite for most of it. They went and sat in the gallery and watched as Doug took away their rights. And only towards the end were people getting really mobilized. I was proud of people, but there was a real lack of a sense of urgency. And I think a lot of those of us who have been out in the streets for other issues, for race issues, for policing issues, for migrant issues, were exhausted. And we're looking at this group of people who are now suddenly like, oh, my God, they can just take away your rights and being like, yes, where have you been? Right. You're the part of the us that like we've been missing in some of these conversations. And now you guys are shocked because you're feeling this one. So, yeah, I want to bring that into the conversation because um, we need to mend those rifts if we're going to move forward. 
Um, uh, if I, I'm, I'm going to share some thoughts here, and you know, if if what I say is off, uh, doesn't make sense, do say so. But it seems to me that nothing is going to stop Doug Ford unless there's serious disruption of his agenda. Not you know, not symbolic outrage, but the kinds of things that movements have done in the past: disruption, strikes, um, mass numbers of people taking the streets. The other factor here is that uh, the NDP opposition, you know, they're going to they're going to speak to outrage and what have you, but they're kind of happy in the sense that they're now the official opposition and they're priming themselves to uh, to try to take power either in four, four years from now or definitely eight years from now. And that will mean that uh, a lot of that disruptive kind of tactics that people will want to push will be undermined. In the meantime, uh, you know, you need to look at the different sectors of, of who can organize or who is organized or who needs to get organized and have those people come together in some way, which all of you in one way or another have alluded to. And those sectors are, you know, community people, people in, uh, who are racialized, uh, organized labor, unorganized labor, poor folks, indigenous folks, uh, students, uh, and, you know, uh, people trying to outdo themselves in terms of their disruption until this government is taken down, sort of this revolutionary dream scenario. Um, but what are the organizing structures that are there that could, that could, um, that could lead to that? In the past, you'd have uh, coalitions of community groups and organized labor, but even that seems out of whack. Uh, um, I know there was a huge amount of disappointment when, when Ford was th uh, sworn in. There was a bit of protest, but not nearly at the level that it should have been to disrupt it. The high school thing is definitely very inspiring, but um, speak a bit about, you know, like my analysis that I just gave, which is by no means original. It just, if this guy's going to be taken down and if what he's doing is so outrageous, there needs to be serious disruption and that needs to be organized with a strategy that is, that is not linked to the NDP or not linked to people who really have an investment in the system as it is. Feel free, anyone, to chime in on that. I think... Um this is Hassan. I think there's one sort of context piece we just want to throw into the mix, right? So why, why? I mean, I'm just jumping off what uh, Desmond just spoke about. He's like, why Toronto? Why now, right? So it's easy, and I think it's true. He's being vindictive, taking out his former, uh, just trying to shit on his former colleagues. But I think there's more happening here, right? We are seeing a setup for populism to rise white supremacy to rise across the country. And this is an agenda that we see with the rise of CAQ in Quebec, with Jason Kenny in Alberta, Saskatchewan's already gone. I mean, in New Brunswick, the popular, the, the you know, populist organization just won four seats yesterday. Um, and so what happens is we're seeing kind of immigrants, racialized people being pushed out of the city, right? And so that's going to continue happening. And those people are being pushed not just out of Toronto, but like, into Durham, and then further, like folks are selling their homes in Scarborough to move to Ajax and Whitby, and then further and further away. We're also seeing relocation of refugees who are coming, um, Nigerian refugees, Haitian refugees, so particularly Nigerian refugees in Ontario, being placed in Chatham, Kent, etc., etc. We're seeing, um, and then there's going to be simultaneously a degradation of public services and degradation of the economy, so people are going to see themselves in small towns across the city uh, with white communities, you know, already under urban, you know, urban and rural white uh, low-wage workers feeling more and more that they are uh, unable to live and work um, and then seeing these immigrants and racialized people come into their communities. And it is going to, uh, in the absence of social services, in the absence of mass organizing, stir up racial tension that would create the conditions for the kind of wave that we've seen from Sweden to India to the United States. And I think this is, we're being set up in a very particular kind of way 
And so we need to take up, when we challenge Ford in his agenda, um, we need to, ch- this is why I said earlier, but like identifying what are the specific key things we can win and what we can't win on. And so we, we need to have just a much broader sort of um, understanding because the other side <laughs> came in with a plan, right? Like they took six weeks to do a line-by-line audit and they put out today uh, just a whole, you know, set of recommendations that they think they will follow to further push austerity. They didn't, they, you know, it, they didn't do that in six weeks. They had that ready. And I think we're, and this is back to your point, Anjagi, like what kind of structures would it take? So I think first and foremost, we require people to fight where they stand, right? So a coalition cannot be formed a coalition is made up of organizations, and those organizations need to be bringing tactics and strategies to the table. And so the escalation needs to happen, um, you know, with grassroots groups, with labor organizations, with women's movement. Um, like, you know, if I, I was like, okay, the, the youth are moving, 15 in fairness and Ontario are moving. Um, those two groups should now be in a coalition. Right. So as people move and actually organize their own houses, they can then join kind of the mass popular front um, uh, versus sort of like first calling a mass. And that's in Toronto. But of course, more other stuff is happening, you know, from Kingston to Ottawa to Leamington and Windsor um, and all the way to Sioux St. Marie. Um, so I think yeah, we need a first we need to organize the cells or the infrastructure that will eventually form a coalition. And I think we really need to spend the next sort of three to four months doing that while focusing on the large symbolic fights, which will definitely impact the most most people. And that means the particular changes to labor law that are coming now and the November 8th deadline for the changes to social assistance, which is the 100-day clock when it runs out. Um, but yeah, fight wherever where we stand. And as you said, disrupt. But not just disrupt, like actually make it unprofitable for um, the, the ruling elite, not just for but the entire ruling elite to go about its daily function. We need them to, you know, we need the billionaires that run this province in this country um, to feel the bite so that they can say, OK, we don't want this guy to keep going because it hurts our bottom line. Hassan, I just wanted to clarify one thing. You mentioned uh, two groups, the high school students who mobilized, but you mentioned a second group and you're saying that could be a start for a coalition. What was that second group? The fight for 15 in fairness, which is a provincial-wide yeah. um, movement to have health workers in there, they have faith leaders, they have students, they have chapters in all the universities, as well as workplaces, right? So, um, which is, so just I'm talking about, like, those two are just one example. But, like, people need to move for them to be in a coalition. We have this sort of inverted where people, like, first coalition will form. But how can you have, bring people in a coalition who aren't fighting? Yeah. Well, it seems to me that Labour and NDP don't want to fight. They're going to say they're fighting, but they don't want to. I'm not sure if others agree, or how do we counteract that? So anyone else want to want to chime in on this one? The only thing, I, I, I mean, I just think I agree that the Fight for 15 campaign is, like, extremely, extremely important. I, I should say 15 in fairness, because it's the $15 minimum wage and all of the labor issues that Hassan mentioned earlier. And that's really important to a lot of people who are really struggling right now. And I think it's a campaign that has caught on and has a broader appeal for a reason, um, which is that people who work full time are still like very desperately in poverty. I just think that that's something a lot of people can understand. Um, And I hope it's one of many kind of fronts that we're going to be able to fight and defeat the government on when it comes to disruption. 
I agree. I agree that um, we're being hurt right now, and the only way that we can resist is in all of the you know old traditional ways that we've always had, which is to make things really uncomfortable and difficult and unprofitable, specifically unprofitable for the elite to not have business as usual in the city of Toronto because we can no longer live this way. Um, Neil Farr, Charmin, how about you guys? I mean, one thing I wanted to pick up is what um, Desmond's point um, a few minutes ago about um, kind of the reactions around the Canadian City Council and... Um, and he's right to point out, like, yeah, how it was a very divisive tactic, um, and um, and now we're kind of entering an election with a lot of, you know, a lot of uncertainty, and it's just very, it's very weird <laughs> um, to think about um, what a progressive election is going to look like not coming in a month. Um, if, um, but um, I think, like, definitely, like, you know, um, continue to contribute to the fight back. I think. I do, I do agree there is some cynicism where um, there has been a lot of fight back like under the liberals. And so often when people come to me and say, oh, cool, now we gotta, now we gotta get down to business and start um, organizing. It's, um, it's weird to hear because, you know, I saw 50 in fairness fight, you know, um, very hard under the liberals. And I saw a lot of activists and OCAP fight very hard under the liberals. And so it's, um, it's I guess I guess the the uh, the challenge I think for more experienced organizers um, is is really knowing how to like plug in or um, contribute to um, people who have never done organizing before or who are new to this who are now coming out of the woodworks being like I'm down you know I want to start um, and taking advantage of that or building on that. Yeah, I, I mean, this is more of a challenge to myself. Like, I think I just need to now um, start thinking very seriously about, like, training and direct action and training and rallies and things like that, um, even though I am feeling a bit of, um, not fatigue, but just, like, confusion as to, um, like, I know the conservatives are uh, going to slash and it'll be very shocking for people, but I am confused by some people's, um, um, I guess, like, assumption that things are good under the liberals, I guess. And, um, and like now is the time to fight. So, I mean, those are just some of the challenges I think I'm just personally facing as someone who's been organizing for 20 years and like came out of, you know, um, like we almost had a general strike in 2001 in BC and that was betrayed by labor unions. And so, yeah, I'm just trying to like psych myself up to fight back again, I guess. Nilafar, if you have something to add, go ahead, and uh, we could start maybe okay. uh, uh, going a little bit into the city stuff. But go ahead, Nilafar. Um, uh, the only point that I want to add to everybody else is, is that Ford is also good in distracting us, like uh, putting us in the position of reactioning, uh, reacting, and we kind of like sometimes forget about the actual cause. For example, the city council is a good example. First was the, uh, first everybody was like, we're going to undermine our constitutional law by using that clause. And then the court ruled that, no, it's not. And then everybody was like, okay. So he, my point is that he was kind of like still 
playing on that respectability form of politics uh, that people used to during the liberal time. And then when we find out that, oh, it's legal, then is a what form of like resistance need to be done in uh, against cutting the city council, for example. I don't know if I'm clear on that or not. But I mean that organizing in board era is like uh, we need to be very focused on our causes and know that he kind of like is trying to smash any different forms of forms that we can resist his politics democratically and strategically kind of like focus our energy around that. That's what I think. I want to move into um, city stuff a bit uh, in the sense, I mean, all of this, all of it is relevant, um, but there is, there is going to be a, um, a municipal election in Toronto. Uh, we've, you've all alluded to the fact that uh, Ford uh, cut the number of city councillors. That became a bit of a mobilizing point for some people in Toronto. Before getting fully into the city stuff, I do want to call on you, Desmond, because one thing that I find particularly inspiring over the past several years in Toronto has been the mobilizing against carding, against racial profiling, uh, against Tavis, against police brutality, people who mobilize around various police killings, such as the killing of Andrew Loku and others. Um, and if, if I can say so, that's been generally successful. Um, and it's been mainly uh, black-led organizing by groups like Black Lives Matter and others and allies and what have you. So f- for listeners who aren't from Toronto, say, who, who will be listening to this, give us, uh, you know, in a concise way, um, a little sense of some of that organizing and mobilizing that's taken place over the past uh, several years. Because it does, in my opinion, it does apply to what's happening now in terms of the current election, especially in the way right-wing and far-right people are, are now once again, playing dog whistle politics, and in some cases, not even dog whistle politics. They're just yelling out loud racist shit. So uh, remind us of some of that resistance. Well, uh, if I can start with the end of what you said, it's like the dog whistle politics are coming from the highest quarters. They're coming from city council and from the mayor's office even. Language comparing black people to vermin. Language saying that black people are cockroaches. And, you know, this is, this is the, the, the sophistication, if you want to call it that, of white supremacy in 2018, is that as long as, and this is what we saw with Doug Ford pointing with the white supremacist also, as long as you disavow it uh, all the way, oh, you know, I believe in a white nationalist ethno state, but I wouldn't call myself a white supremacist, right? That's enough for people. <laughs> That's what we're seeing. And um, so... Yeah, you have the mayor of the city of Toronto calling people vermin. And people are like, oh, this is acceptable because we're outraged about gun violence. Um, that was his sewer rats comment, he, right? Yeah, John Tory referred to the assailant or assailants, uh, the presumed assailant or assailants um, of a shooting in a Toronto playground as antisocial sewer rats. Um, this pantomiming of anger over crimes that are purported to be committed by black people. This outrage that has no equal in Toronto among crimes. It's palpable at the highest levels of office and that was supposed to end with the Rob Ford era. That's what people thought, right? Um, What I can say about the organizing around 
policing in general in Toronto in the last few years is that I am fortunate to be alive, to be witnessing the local incarnation of the Black Lives Matter movement. That is Black Lives Matter Toronto. Um, because I think that they've led a large part of what we've seen happening and shifting. They're not alone, um, but I think that they're a pretty clear catalyst, um, one of the most important catalysts in recent years. And I think what they, they have done is, well, they've done a lot, but they've engaged in advocacy in such a way that it is disruptive, as was mentioned earlier, that it is impossible to ignore, that really expresses the gravity of the moment that we're in. It, it puts in a new way, I think, in the city of Toronto, the issues of queer black people, um, black trans people, black people with disabilities on the forefront of these movements, a lot more so than it has been done in the past. It puts accessibility needs and um, gender expression and gender identity and um, a lot of things that maybe have been missing from a lot of our movements, much more in the forefront. And um, they have relentlessly fought, you know, I think of the demonstration in front of uh, Toronto police headquarters for 16 days in a very cold April uh, in 2016, after the police officer who killed Andrew Loku, his name is Andrew Doyle, he was not charged with anything by the special investigations unit, and that was when that protest began. There was also the attempt to strip us of our cultural festivities in the way of Afrofest at that time. BLM organized fiercely against that. BLM took over the highway after Andrew died, the, the Allen Expressway. Black Lives Matter Toronto encouraged the coroner's, um, the coroner's office to have an inquest into Andrew Loku's death, uh, got the Toronto City Council, symbolic as it may be, to use the words anti-black racism in bylaw for, I think, the first time ever. Um, I'm sorry I'm rambling about all of these things, but if I could talk really, really, really quickly about carding, I'll just say that we have gone in a loop. That's not... Black Lives Matter Toronto's fault. That's not the fault of any of the groups for the last 30 years who have been advocating against police surveillance. But we had a moment with John Tory when I think, again, due to Black Lives Matter, due to all of their momentum, John Tory felt like he needed to say, I'm abandoning this carding idea. He then went and did the exact opposite and continued the practice in Toronto under, you know, basically different premises and different names. Um, we did get rid of Tavis, the Toronto Anti-Violence Intervention Service. Uh, Kathleen Wynne decided to defund that. But that program did a lot of damage. And again, it's being, it's, it, there's attempts to reintroduce those kinds of things or continue those things in different name and different manner. Um, <laughs> we see when there's gun violence this summer that you can deploy 200 officers or tell the public that you're going to. And when everybody says, well, where are you going to deploy them? No one has to answer. We see that when there's shootings on the Danforth in a more, I think in people's minds, white area, the response is, Oh, well, we're going to bring in a 
new technology to have microphones in neighborhoods. Oh, which neighborhoods? Oh, don't worry about it. Um, the surveillance continues. The documentation of black life continues. Um, <laughs> two steps forward, one step back, sometimes three steps back, etc. You've You've described, you described a lot of things, but what I take from it is some inspiring organizing, an uptick of organizing, you know, in the 20, 2015, 2016 period. But, um, and I'm not much of an electoralist, but, you know, elections give us a chance to sort of assess where we're at, a barometer, it's a talking point. And it just seems this Toronto mayoral and city council election is stunningly underwhelming. <laughs> um, you know, Tory is polling somewhere at 60%. Uh, his main opponent, Keysmat, is, you know, just the vibe she gives off. I don't hesitate to say this because, you know, I'm from Toronto. It's just sort of a, a Toronto bike riding vibe, which is not going to play for a lot of people. And the other fear in this whole fucking mayoral election is that a, a unapologetic white nationalist and white supremacist who appeared on the Daily Stormer broadcast um, might start polling in a way that people are going to pay attention. And this is all in a, in, in a city that is, you know, the most multicultural, one of the most multicultural cities in the world. Um, it's a city that's a nightmare for white supremacists everywhere else. They, they, they want us to avoid, they want the world to avoid what happened to Toronto. And meanwhile, all these policies and politics are, are playing out. So I want to get your thoughts, all of you, on, on this, this city election. Not so much the punditry about who's going to win or not, but just like I, what I just expressed, the underwhelming nature of it and to what extent can real shit, real progressive stuff uh, come through uh, out of all of this uh, morass. Mimia, we'll, this time we'll start just to switch it up a bit with uh, Nilofar. Go ahead, Nilofar. Sure. Um, there is an issue with uh, Toronto's multiculturalism, too. Uh, many of the uh, ethnic groups also include rich people. And those rich people in those ethnic groups have, uh, are those some, sometimes um kind of like have power over some community uh organizing spaces in social sense sometimes media sometimes different aspects religious or other aspects and many times i see that in these communities uh these specific class of people uh, align themselves with conservatives or uh, the kind of like politics, they don't pay, pay attention to the um, politics that's going to harm their community as whole. And they say, oh, we have priorities. And uh, we can, for example, see that uh, conservative um, group has like members from those communities who represent uh, the party and then that is how that sometimes even many of the um, ethnic groups uh, vote against end up voting against what is uh, behind the benefit and this kind of like resemble in mayor for elections too one of those i mean i think this plays out in all communities but uh, it specifically played out more recently in markham and parts of Toronto, too, um, within the Chinese community, where there, there are right-wingers who've organized demonstrations against refugees, and they've exploited the, the killing of, of, a, of a person in Vancouver to organize rallies. So it is really fucking disturbing. 
And that's a really good point that, you know, we shouldn't perceive these communities as being inherently progressive. Uh, a lot of these class conservative dynamics uh, play out. Sharmin or Hassan, do you have thoughts on, on, on this topic about the underwhelming nature of what's happening municipally and, uh, and the lack of any sort of real progressive strain that's playing out? Even though it's an election, and again, I'm critical of that, it is a barometer of where we're at. I guess, um, for me, the, I mean, first of all, I think Desmond's absolutely right. Black Lives Matter Toronto, you know, created a massive tactical transformation in the city, as well as a strategic one, you know, forcing many of us to speak directly about anti-black racism in the specific ways that it was enacting. Um, And I think that one of the big losses in Toronto was how, um, those tactics were not generalized, like why other people weren't like, oh, we could also do this. And and that to me is worrisome. Um, you know, other movements didn't escalate along with it and didn't we didn't create kind of a much more radical tradition in the city where we were fighting for all issues with the same kind of um, uh, tactical shift. So that's a concern. Now, coming to the bet, still very inspiring for what happened in the black community, uh, in terms of the Toronto elections, I think, you know, just to point out, like, you know, from who's, you know, a much, much more bigger and much worse white supremacist, I don't believe I'm saying these words, is running for mayor in uh, Hamilton. Uh, Patrick Brown is running, who was the Doug Ford's uh, predecessor who was kicked out, you know, for sexual assault, um, is polling high uh, in Brampton as the mayor. So across and these are important places, the greater Toronto um, area, but also the Golden Horseshoes, where now in Canada elections are made and lost. This is, if you win this area, you'll probably win most of the country. Um, and these are primarily racialized um, uh, communities. And I think Lefer is very right. We're seeing this shift towards, sure, the downtown Toronto is NDP into orange, but the rest of the province and the rest of the GTA is not. So, we have to understand the Toronto elections in the broader context of the municipal elections and the ways in which the rightward shift is happening. Um, but then going back to the other question around organizing, we see this, I mean, I see this interesting thing that the response to Doug Ford's election is people, progressives often um, self-defined, uh, uh, turning to the municipal election as the site of struggle. Uh, trying to, and, and that's a problem. Right, because we are trying to look away from the actual fight and trying to um, think that you know now it's at the local level that we can make change. And I think that um, sure, some progressives can and who see themselves in that role should fight there. But we need to be taking Doug Ford head on. We need to be taking white supremacy and the rise of populism across the country head on. And we need to be you know particularly around. Um, the border crosses on foot from the United States and the masses of um, xenophobia and hysteria that's coming out of it, which, you know, Doug Ford really pushed, which Goldie really pushed, that From really pushed um, uh, to really take that on. And so I think a lot of the anti-racist, but also economic justice um, mobilization collectively needs to um, work together. So for me, the bigger concern isn't just so much how status quo the municipal election is, but how much of an energy suck it is and also the the too much focus on Toronto is actually um, making us not realize like what's actually happening with all, you know, there are 400 municipalities in Ontario and trying to keep track of the kind of, you know, shifts that are happening there. Of course, there's some progressives who are running in Niagara. I mean, I could go through all of the major ones, but it's not enough. And I think um, the shift to right is happening very much at the local level. 
Um, and yet it doesn't mean that more people participate in electoral places and try to keep those seats, um, but rather to mobilize a broad multi-front movement um, that takes on the, the entire challenge. We cannot turn away from the bigger enemy. Before, um, sorry, go ahead. Um, well, I just want to point out that we, there is a, we do have a progressive candidate running for a mayor, and she isn't like getting, um, pulling as high as like Kismat or Tory, but um, she's been getting more press lately, but Throne Gerbasolasi has been um, pushing a really progressive platform in her campaign. Um, and I think what's inspiring to me about her campaign is that, I mean, not to transport anything from the States, but we see in the States this wave of um, young women of color unseating, you know, like the norm core politicians uh, and people resonating with their message um, around um, housing. And, um, and and now she's getting a lot more press. Like, and she's actually holding them to task about... Um, Tory wanting to hire 200 more police officers, um, talking about free transit, you know, like I, this is the first time, I mean, I only moved to Toronto in 05, but it's the first time I've actually heard in a mayoral uh, debate the term free transit and have it be debated in a real way. Um, and so, you know, for me, I'm just like, I'm, I want to throw my support behind her and I think, um, I think activists should uh, because I think her platform does reflect a lot of what we are needing, um, even if it's just pushing um, those narratives forward. A lot of people say she doesn't have a chance, but um, I really don't believe that. I really think that um, there could be a moment where uh, people want to vote for the, you know, unsuspecting uh, person. And I think, um, yeah, I just wanted to like just throw out that uh, she is a progressive candidate. She's a young black woman um, and has been a community organizer. Um, and I think people are slowly beginning to notice her more in the mainstream media um so i just want to i just i just want to point that out that it's not just between you know tori and kismat right now but she also um during the debate today earlier today um asked demanded that both uh, tori and uh, kismat denounce police brutality which they didn't do clearly and when that free public transit thing got mentioned uh, kismat who's supposed to be a progressive urban planner called it a dream so uh, you make a know, you, you, you make a good point there. Um, I did want to just point out that um, in in response to Hassan, or just to add to what Hassan said about all these far right wing, like in some cases full on racists like Paul Fromm, but uh, in other cases people who are like skirting with the far right and what have you. In uh, it's already been mentioned. We didn't mention his name. I hate to say his name, but you know George Mamaliti is a counselor in Toronto City Hall. This is somebody who who called. Um, people living in social housing in the Jane Finch area, cockroaches. He actually posted a Faith Goldie post quickly on Facebook, but within two, uh, within two hours he, he deleted it and nobody really caught on to it, uh, unlike Rob Ford, so Mamali- uh, unlike Doug Ford. So <laughs> Mamaliti showed a little bit of restraint compared to Doug Ford. But there's also other candidates. and Where I'm originally from, where my mom still lives in, in the Don Valley Village, uh, there's a city councilor candidate who's part of the Chinese community who's part of these anti-refugee anti-refugee efforts and what have you. So it is really fucking disturbing. But I know, Desmond, you wanted to add something to this? Well, um, going back and referencing an earlier comment about how Doug is very good at distracting us, which I think is a very important thing to remember in all of this, always. Um, the 
big effect of that for me has been that the mayoral race now has been sapped of a lot of its energy because we didn't know what kind of election, if any, we were even going to have until last week, which is quite a feat for a provincial government in terms of interference. It's, it's impressive. Um, so the, all the energy was taken in process. And meanwhile, every day there's a new, you know, we're going to um, re-examine this environmental policy or scrap that one, or we're going to take a new look at the sex ed curriculum, or we're going to cancel a thousand wind contracts. Um, very distracting and overwhelming. And so, yes, I think that in Toronto's election, you see that manifest as <laughs> it's like we're only starting to get on our feet now and the election is just about over in terms of talking about any issues. In terms of, look, I don't want to talk about Mamelody either, but I do want to talk about the idea that social housing in Toronto is so bad that people are literally being forced out because units are too unfit for human beings to live in at this point in many cases. And so you have an open racist piece of trash capitalizing on that suffering and knowing that people are weak and knowing that people are feeling vulnerable and don't want to speak up for themselves perhaps at this time and saying, let's knock their houses down altogether. Let's just knock their houses down. He's going a step up from the racist rhetoric of throwing families out of Toronto housing for suspected criminal activity, uh, or maybe, th maybe their threshold is convicted criminal activity. I don't really give a shit, but even mayor Tory, again, this, the, the low bar that we're living in right now in Toronto, even mayor Tory agrees with this eviction process of evicting criminals as they call them, how they'll define a criminal, but your whole family is a criminal once they convict you and then decide that it's punishment by association. Uh, so Mamalidi goes a step further and says, I can do even better than throwing people out. Let's just knock the whole fucking buildings down. And this has been in to a screaming void of no response from the media being like, well, he really said that bold. And, um, <laughs> there's an emboldening right now. I think that we have to be very wary of uh, and, that's what it comes to mind for me when we talk about what's happening in uh, Jane Finch is that this is really about like things like housing, which we're not talking about because all the air is being sucked up by, um, uh, by drama and by distraction. Um, there is probably more, there's probably a lot more on this topic of the city of Toronto, but never mind. <laughs> yeah. And we've, we've been at it for a while. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to maybe start wrapping up, um, but in doing so, I'm going to ask each of you to bring up a topic that we haven't discussed yet, but that might be related to the things we're talking about, or reinforce a point, you know. Um, but Hassan, in your case, I'm going to uh, assign you the topic. <laughs> My apologies, but it's something I don't think you're going to mind talking about. And uh, and then the three others of you can also talk, but um, there's a name I learned about um, the last few days. That name is Ibrahim Touré. And I think everyone should know his name, but more importantly, uh, the struggle behind what Ibrahim Touré did. And it, it reflects something that is, well, I mean, it's just devastating what this person had to live through, but it's also an example of resistance that I think needs to be shared. So, uh, Hassan, I, I'll let you share that and, let, and, and the others can think about uh, a topic that we haven't addressed yet that they want to bring up as we wrap up. Go ahead, Hassan. 
Okay, so Ibrahim Touri um, was until a few days ago Canada's longest serving immigration detainee. So he was a man who was held in a maximum security prison without trial or charges for over five years. Um, and he is one of the many long-term immigration detainees that have been released in the last few years. I mean, you know, when we started this work just about four years ago, there were people who'd been in prison for 13 years, the longest serving detainee. Ibrahim's case is um, really simple. He uh, cannot be deported. He, um, the government has been unable to show that they can be deported, but they basically imprisoned him. And so over the last five years, he's been part of two different hunger strikes uh, and um, where he's been trying to assert his rights. There's been a series of mobilizations for him. Um, uh, and our grassroots groups have been going through detention reviews on a on a monthly basis, there has been enormous amount of media attention. The Toronto Star has done an investigation. And over and over again, it has shown that there, he, the man has been in jail without trial or charges for absolutely no reason. I mean, there's been all of this nonsense that's been shared about him, about the fact that he had um, some association with criminality in the United States. But of course, that doesn't matter because he was never charged or convicted there. Uh, and he it was basically an, a ticket that he didn't pay for. In any case... Um, Ibrahim Touri's case was also done as part of an external review of the CBSA uh, by uh, the CBS, which is the Canada Border Services Agency, which you know used this case. It is an example of how the entire judicial oversight of the system is so incredibly broken. Um, and the reason the government kept giving, actually, in the last year, is that there was no one from his community, um, he's, he's Gambian, who could be his surety. And so also for the last year, myself and two other people from known as Illegal Toronto uh, were actually in the Gambian community. We were going to the mosque, we were organizing in the community. There's just 400 people and, you know, dozens and hundreds of them came forward, packed the courts. We went actually all the way to the federal court, sorry, the Ontario court um, uh, on a habeas corpus. And and uh, not just that, I mean, we, we were many people in this community would step up and promise to be surety, but on some um, bullshit reason or the other, they would be dismissed by the detention system. Uh, but then eventually, just um, last Thursday, the finally two people who had already been rejected for no reason, with no new facts appeared, and this time, uh, I think in part because of the immense pressure, because it's now, after nearly six years, so become so unavoidable, he was released um, in this just show goes to show, I mean, broadly what's happening in Canada is that the detention system is extremely broken and a result of mass organizing, first and foremost by detainees and then by supporters. Everyone who's on this call has done so much work about um, immigration detention. And the government has just tried to either deport people that they can and release the rest to show that uh, uh, the system is not so bad, but they're not actually making the legislative changes that are required to end the injustice. So under a new government, a shift in policy would see greater numbers of lockups. So, you know, Tory's release is uh, is yet just more evidence. I mean, there was no new facts, nothing changed. Uh, it was the same board members who had essentially continued to jail him every month for five years um, who finally released him. So um, all it shows is that the system is, you know, this is... Uh, is designed to incarcerate primarily black men without trial or charges indefinitely um, from uh, poor countries in the world. And um, we need to 
would be seeing that the broader shift in immigration that's happening um, and what it is is that there's all of these new detention prisons being built across the country, including in Montreal uh, and in BC and the expansion in Toronto. So it's only a matter of time when this um, policy of release will be overturned because there will not be prisons that they'll have to fill um, that we need to be really trying to shut down and organize around. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that summary. And if I can just add to it... Um um, I think a lot about uh, a similar fight in terms of fighting for somebody who uh, he spent a lot shorter time as an immigration detainee, Abdul Abdi, but he served a prison sentence before that and then was eligible to be deported from this country. And it's just, it's the same fight over and over again for people who are at risk of deportation. And so really, I, I just want to add to what Hassan just said by saying that uh, we need to continue to push for status for all, of course, and find ways to get that um, campaigning into the larger political apparatus. Like, I think that this is something that politicians need to start really honestly saying out loud and asking for, that we need to move this up the dial because we fight these ones and ones and ones of fights, and sometimes we get a huge relief. I don't even sometimes think of it as a victory so much as a relief, that we're not going to lose somebody else. Uh, but we, we, need, we need to obviously start to contemplate what status for all really looks like in this country. Um, the other thing I wanted to go back to, though, as a kind of closing, closing thought, was um, the comments about Sarangeva Selassie in the mayor's race, because I agree wholeheartedly that she is actually putting forward a platform um, that a lot of really left people can get behind. She's talking about housing. Um, she's talking about the arts. She's talking about um, accessibility. Um, and, I, and I think that that's good. Uh, I think that the problem is that Saran started campaigning in May. And that Jennifer Keesmat, who's seen as Tory's great competition, signed up in, what, July, on the last day of uh, registration, which seems like 10 years ago in Toronto. <laughs> but, um, you know, whatever resistance was going to be made in the 2018 election against John Tory and his continuation of Rob Ford's previous four years of austerity, it was never really going to get off the ground. Because I, I think that the, the large left, the labor left and the NDP left, had conceded this election before it started. I really do. And so I think that it's a breath of fresh air to have somebody like Soron on the ballot and in these debates and in the public conversation, pushing this conversation way to the left. But I, I think that um, I'll just finish by saying that those kind of questions that were being raised before about why there wasn't more radical mobilization here in Toronto recently and why we didn't pick up, for example, on the momentum that BLM created. I think we have uh, an election that we're going to lose again and John Tory is going to be our mayor. And then we all need to chill the fuck out and sit down and talk about what we want to see differently and what has worked in Toronto. And there need to be some, probably some hard conversations between a lot of our people in Toronto who are feeling that they ought to be pulling in the same direction, but maybe are not feeling that. 
And I think that that will, in the whatever flaky way that it sounds like I'm saying it, I'm really serious. People need to start talking to one another about why they're afraid to go out into the street if they're able to do so, about why certain things are worth getting so upset about and mobilizing about, but not others. There are new interests and new energies in the city of Toronto as a result of everything that's going on over the last several years. We can take opportunity. We can take advantage of that, I believe. But we have to have some very honest conversations. And by the we, I mean all of us who see ourselves in any community doing any kind of organizing. And I think that Labour and the NDP have a particular responsibility as the people with the big voices to convene those conversations and to hear some things. I'll leave it there. Whoa, that <laughs> leaving it there opens up a whole other debate. But I wait, won't... wait, wait. Who should convene it? No, yeah, no, let's not let's not get into that. Let's just maybe put that put that in the fridge and maybe open that conversation up again. I want um <laughs> I you really dropped a big one there, Desmond, at the end. Um but let's uh let's get I'm final sorry. No I'm no, sorry. that's good. That's good because we'll we're gonna be talking about this again. I, I, I... I, I don't I don't mean that like they get to hold the left people meeting. I just mean that like there's some things that the rest of us need to say to them. And uh I think that it's gonna be like a family difficult conversation, but that it needs to be had. That that doesn't mean that they get to control the conversation. I don't mean convenient in that way, but I I'm I'm thinking that the people who have the most power who call themselves the institutional left in this city and in this province maybe need to have a little bit of a listening session from the rest of us. Yeah, I'd, I'd prefer that the high school students convened it with fair, uh, <laughs> Fight for 15 and maybe BLM and no one's legal and whoever shows, shows. Um, <laughs> but let's yeah, get fun. Yeah, I would love to believe that we could actually <laughs> win this fight without all those folks. They, they have all the money and the institutional force behind them. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going down a big path now. I apologize. No, no, that's that's good. And that would be a great starting point for hour number two. <laughs> but let's get the final thoughts from um, from Nilofar and Charmin. So go ahead, Nilofar. Well, I want to talk more uh, about the eight students who York is going after and why it's happening. Yeah, there's people the facing suspension. Students. Yeah. Pardon me. Go ahead. I, I was just I was just saying what it was, but you're about to explain that. So go ahead. Yeah, uh, three undergrad students who were part of Reclaim York U, and they were very active with media. They talked to media. And that's why York is going after them. And there's five grad students, each from different departments. So my theory is that they want to spread the fear as much as possible among the students to not raise their concerns. All of them were participating in peaceful demonstrations and actions, uh, mostly at Board of Governors, uh, York Board of Governors offices, which are CEOs of big businesses who are now having say in education and where our tuition fee is being invested. And one of those areas that our tuition fee are being invested is arms. So which means that our tuitions will become in form of arms and bombs and fall on some of their people's heads and kill them. And a big movement that's happening at York is also divestment, which Board of Governors tries to shut it down, and uh, they were trying to pass motion that even make it impossible to divest. Um, 
So I want to put this in context that why York is going after its students uh, and using strike as a good time to do it in order to shut down any form of freedom of expression on campus and opposing uh, the impact of businesses on education. Nilofar, is there a, is there a website or, or some some place that people can go to support support the people who are who are being uh, threatened at York? Um, yes, there is a website. Uh, I forgot its name, but if you search uh, "reprisal at York U," it will come up. Awesome. And uh, uh, we have a fundraising campaign for the undergrads who uh, to cover their legal fees because the graduate students are covered by QP. Cool. So, Charmaine, you get the get the last word here. Go ahead. I guess one thing I wanted to just talk more about, I mentioned earlier, was that um, there's going to be a giant mobilization against the um, month debate with Steve Bannon and David Frum, and, um, and it's November 2nd, and um, I know it might not seem like completely connected to like what we're talking about in a specific way in terms of Forward. Um, but in terms of like the rise of white supremacy and the normalization of this kind of politics and those groups, um, we felt it was necessary to respond and to shut it down. Um, so this kind of um, there's a plan to like one um, have moments debate like cancel the debate, and if that doesn't work, then to show up and shut it down. Um, and I think. Why uh, I hope that uh, people get involved is, um, one, I think this will be actually an opportunity for um, the different groups that uh, we are all mentioning to maybe work together um, and um, build some unity, um, but also build skills around different ways that we can respond that's family-friendly, but also more nonviolent direct action. Um, but just to really make clear that um, it's not acceptable for um, these individuals to be in Toronto and debate populism. I use debate in our quotes. Um, and that's uh, incredibly offensive that um, our public resources and buildings are going to host that. So I just wanted to make a plug for that. Um, and I guess in terms of like, um, just a more like general thought, um, is I do think we do um, need to talk more seriously about the hard conversation that Desmond talks about but I also want to know, like, really know how we can build a culture of skill sharing and training, um, which I think might respond to the question of why people are maybe scared to go to the streets. Um, and I'm doing stuff with Tools for Change, and I'll probably check in with my comrades on this phone separately about what training um, we need to do um, for activists. And um, I think it's something that we can't rely on unions to do or like nonprofits. I think we need to as grassroots organizations and organizers do ourselves. And so, um, yeah, I know that I really want to spend a big chunk of the next while really thinking about that in a real way so that um, we can build that effective response that we need. So here, here. My, that's my last thought. Um, I want to thank all of you. Um, we could definitely spend more time, but uh, these news roundups will continue, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to this topic in a few months. So um, Desmond Cole... Nilufar Golkar, Syed Hassan, and Sharmin Khan, all active in the Toronto area, uh, fighting capitalism and racism and all forms of oppression and fighting the Ford government. Thanks uh, for participating in this news roundup as part of No Borders Media.
Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And goodbye, everyone. Take care. You were just listening to a No Borders Media News Roundup focused on resistance to the right-wing Doug Ford government and featuring the viewpoints of four Toronto-based left-wing activists, organizers, and commentators. No Borders Media, based in Toronto and Montreal, is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of Indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of colour, all in the context of opposition to colonialism and capitalism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.